Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. Amen. All right, if you got a Bible, I want to jump right into the Word of God on today. I want to jump right into the Word today. We are in Exodus, the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 18. Exodus 18 today. We've been journeying through the book of Exodus in a sermon series called God with us. And so we we have just been going through this journey in the life of Israel, people that God has saved and, and set apart for himself. And we are looking at how God has delivered them and brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery and out of bondage, and has brought them into the wilderness. And so we look at the book of Exodus, it just means exit or departure, right? Exit or departure. And their story is a picture and pattern of the Christian life where they've been rescued from the hand of Pharaoh and his dominance and power over them. And God has rescued them out of Egypt in the same way God has rescued us from the dominion and power of sin. Jesus has led us out through the cross and through the resurrection. And so when we see their deliverance, we should see our own deliverance. And so we've been going through this story, but we we get to chapter 18 today and chapter 18 serves as somewhat of a hinge to the entire book of Exodus. Chapter 18 actually gets us, gives us an opportunity to look back at all that God has done for Israel from raising up a leader called Moses to bringing him up and for him to come back and lead his people out of Egypt into the wilderness on the way to Mount Sinai before they ultimately journey towards towards Canaan. And so today serves as a pivotal, a pivotal part because we get introduced to a, a new theme today. And we can often wonder, man, what, what, what is going on here with the people of God? What, what is going on with them? And how are they to respond to what God has done for them? This, this deliverance they've experienced is not just some normal deliverance because when God saves, God doesn't just do a normal salvation. God saves us miraculously and supernaturally. And so the people have a response to what God has done for them. And so today we get to see that God has an assignment for them. And this assignment that he has for them is very similar in the same as the assignment that God has for all of us who bear the name of Jesus. He has called us to witness even in the wilderness. He's called us to witness even in the wilderness. The wilderness is a place that Israel really does not want to be, but it's the place that God has them and God expects for them to still do the work that he's called them to do in the midst of being in a hard place. And so we get to this part of the story and we're introduced to a new character, a new person in the story. And we'll look at him today and we'll look at him next week because it is an interesting story of salvation to a, to a person who at one point did not believe. Exodus chapter 18, verses 1 through 12, says this, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything that God had done for Moses and for God's people Israel when the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken in Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, along with her two sons, one of whom was named Gershon, because Moses had said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land, and the other, Eleazar, because he said, the God of my father was my helper and rescued me from Pharaoh's sword. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, along with Moses' wife and sons, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped at the mountain of God. 
He sent word to Moses, I'm tired of your wife and your kids eating all my groceries. I'm coming back to you to bring back your family. That's not what he said, but that's, just, that's what I imagine he had said. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down and kissed him. They asked each other how they had been and went into the tent, and Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that confronted them on the way and how the Lord rescued them. Jethro rejoiced over all the good things the Lord had done for Israel when he rescued them from the power of the Egyptians. Here's what he said, blessed be the Lord, Jethro exclaimed, who rescued you from the power of Egypt and from the power of Pharaoh. He has rescued the people from under the power of Egypt. Now I know, now I know, now I know, an unbelieving person, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because he did wonders when the Egyptians acted arrogantly against Israel. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, who's an unbeliever, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in God's presence. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. God, we thank you for your grace that is sufficient. We thank you, Father, that you are more than enough today. Um, Lord, I just pray that while we're gathered today, Lord, that you would do a supernatural work in our hearts. That we would live in the reality of what you've done for us through your son, Jesus. Um, I pray you would grow us today, God. God, I pray you would shake us in such a way that we, we won't ever be the same. I pray today we bring us, you bring us just a little step closer to you, Father. I pray that we are made a little more in your son's image today, God. And I pray that, Lord, you do what only you can do through the work of the Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that this message would birth transformation in your people's lives. And I also pray, God, that it would set us on fire, God, that, that we, we would find purpose in God, that we would find that we find our identity in him, Lord, and, and, and who you called us to be. And so, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, work on your people's hearts and minds today. Lord, let us not just listen to a sermon, but let us actively engage with all of our senses, Lord, that, that we would engage with the word of God the same way we would engage at a concert, the same way we would engage at a, at a baseball game or a basketball game or a football game or, or some sort of athletic event. Lord, 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 let us be fully engaging and embracing of all that you have to say and do through us today so father we pray this prayer so your son jesus name we pray and people of god said amen you may be seated from the sermon series god with us my sermon title today is work work in the wilderness work in the wilderness maybe you've heard or maybe you haven't heard recently there has been a great decline in people who would identify as Christians in the United States of America. At one point, it was common and ex expected that people would be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, e even if they were not true followers in their hearts. In some geographic places within the country, people went to church, whether they truly believed or not. It was a part of life. It was what people did. Even if people were not followers of Jesus, they had somewhat of a sense of morality, but as our age has become more secular and people have become more hostile to God, we've seen a decline in the number of people who say that they are Christians. But, but it also comes out and bears through, just through the statistics that there are less and less people going to church. There was a recent Barner survey that came out that I think lends to part of the reason why there are less people in church and why there are less people 
who are Christians, and, and, and I can point at the world and say that the world has become more secular and the world has become more hostile to God. We could truly blame the world for, for its craftiness and the ways that it's got the attention of the masses, especially the younger generation, and, and taken their attention away from God and put their attention squarely on themselves. I, I can point out some reasons there, but, but I, I want to start at the household of God. I, I think that we should actually look at ourselves and see if we bear any responsibility for the decline in, in churches and also the decline of people who now uh, bear witness to the faith that we say that we follow. There's a recent survey that Barna did, and it was based on, on this statement. Every Christian has a responsibility to share their faith. Here was the statement, that the survey that was done based off of this one statement. Every Christian has a responsibility to share their faith. And the statistics was this. In 1993, nine out of ten Christians agreed that it was their responsibility as believers to actually go out and share their faith with unbelievers. 1993, there were Nine out of ten Christians who would have agreed with that assessment. Today, the numbers bear something different. There's been a 25% drop where there's only two-thirds or 64% of Christians who say that it's their responsibility to share their faith. And so we look at this, we, we can see that we have a church that has failed to live up to the command that God gave us. It is amazing to me that even amongst Christians, even amongst people who are followers of Jesus, we say things like, I wonder what my purpose is. I have yet to find, find my purpose. We, even as believers, are on a scavenger hunt to figure out who we are and what God has called us to do as if there's some mystery to it. But, but I want to highlight today that who you are and what you've been called to be is not guesswork. You, you don't have to discover it. You don't have to go on a scavenger hunt. You don't, you don't have to take all of these different tests, whether you are a person who works on the top floor of a high rise and you're an executive or you work on the bottom floor at the receptionist's desk. Your purpose is still the same. That is to glorify God with your life and to share his message. You have a purpose. God has a plan in your life to use you right where you are, no matter how insignificant you think your work is. There is work to do in the wilderness. Yes, it is true. Your life may be hard. Yes, it is true. Things are not always going the way you planned or the way that you intended, but God expects you to do his will in spite of it because that's what he's called you to do. If we wait till everything is right and easy, we will never get anything done. And when we look through scripture, we never see men and women who are walking on easy street doing what God called them to do. They always met opposition. But that was a part of the plan and purpose so that people could see us in our weakness and know that the work that was being done was not our own, but it belonged to God alone. So this is not just a story about Israel. This is not just a story about Pharaoh. This is not the story about Pharaoh and the Egyptians. That This is not just their story. This is a story about a God who has saved and set apart a people for himself so that they could be a light to the nations and bring his salvation to the world. God chose his people. He set them apart for himself as his prized possession to be the mediators of his message of salvation. And let me put 
put it to you simply, God saved them to use them. God saved them to use them. God saved them to use them when God brought them out of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh and God miraculously brought them through the Red Sea. God literally brought them through a sea, made the water stand up like a wall and they walked through on dry ground, looked back and the enemy that was chasing them was drowned in the same water they just walked through. God didn't do that for no reason. God saved them so he could use them. And if God saved them to use them, God is doing the same thing for you. When the prophet Isaiah was speaking to Israel, he says, God says this to Israel, you are my witnesses. I've chosen you as my servant so that you would know and believe and understand that I am he. No God was formed before me and no God will be formed after me. I am the Lord and, and there is no salvation in anybody else. And your responsibility is to tell the nations who I am and tell them the life-changing, life-giving message of what I've done for my people. He gave them an assignment to do. And if they could just get their eyes off themselves and their own plight and their own issues, if they could just take their focus off of themselves and put their focus on God, they would see that they had the greatest purpose that a people could ever have because almighty God enlisted them to do his work for his glory and his purposes. I don't think you understand the importance of that, that, that you don't have to come up with your own plan and your own purpose and find some meaning in life outside in the world. You can actually find it right here in God. The world is searching for identity and the world is searching for purpose and it is an endless pursuit that will come up void and empty. But God says, if you would follow after me, if you would do my will, if you would let me use you, I won't just give you temporal work, I will give you eternal work. God calls us to a greater purpose than we could ever imagine. You can't plan the kind of purpose that God gave us. But God wants to use us if we would just surrender to him. The mission that he gave them would allow them to be a part of the greatest work that's ever been done. And if their story, that is their story, it is also our story. And God has given us a commission and given us this glorious, eternally significant opportunity like you got to see that that's what God is doing in your life. Like, like get, get your eyes off yourself, Israel. Stop, stop complaining about your situation, Israel. Stop, stop waiting for things to get better and ideal before you give the Lord your heart and serve him with your whole life. Stop waiting for this perfect moment and perfect opportunity when you have a white picket fence and this perfect house and this perfect marriage and those perfect kids. I got a newsflash for you. None of those things are perfect. And none of those things will give you the value the worth that you're looking for outside of God. And we have this opportunity and we play a role in the growth of God's kingdom through the witness of our life and our words. We play a role in the growth of God's kingdom through the witness of our life and our words. I'm separating the two on purpose. Through our life the way you live and your words, what you say to people. We, we have an opportunity to expand the kingdom of God. It's the greatest work ever. Matter of fact, God has a, work, has a name for this. Jesus had a name for this work. He called it the Great Commission. And, and, and the crazy thing is there was another survey done, and the majority of people, almost half of the Christians, say that they don't even know what the Great Commission is. They don't even know the work that God has called them to. No wonder we don't have an identity. No wonder we're looking for purpose. God gave it to us and we don't even know what it is because we refuse to read our Bibles.
Let me, let me show you this. I want, I want to put something on the screen. You know Matthew 28. You already know that. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. But I think it's very even clearer and more succinct in Mark 16, verse 15. Look at what it says in Mark 16, 15. Then he said to them, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Not just people that look like you. Not just people that agree with everything that you say. Not just people that grew up in the same kind of background that you grew up in. Not the people that are the same gender of as you. Not the same people that are in the same socioeconomic bracket as you. No, but go and preach this good news to all of creation. If they got ears, preach to them. They got ears, preach to them. Matter of fact, Paul later says this in 2 Corinthians 5.20. I just want to make it clear for you that you have a purpose that God has given you. You have a purpose. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says this, therefore... We are ambassadors for Christ. You know what an ambassador does? Ambassador represents a foreign nation in another country. You are from a different place. You, you, are from, you are an ambassador of heaven, but you're here on earth as an ambassador to your homeland. We, we are ambassadors for Christ, our king, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, and here's our message to the world, be reconciled to God. This is your purpose for God. God has given you a purpose. He's given you a mission. He's given you a plan. He's called you an ambassador. You have a job that, 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 that God has given you, that God has enlisted you, and you don't have to have the resume qualifications to get in the job. Here it is. We have it. And I know what you're saying. Ooh, that, that word stuff, talking to people, Pastor, you don't know. I'm, I'm shy. I haven't been saved that long. I'm not really eloquent in the speech. I don't, I don't know enough. Like, I, you know, I, maybe one day I'll learn my Bible and I'll start talking. I'm shy. I'm bashful. I, I'm an introvert. I don't really talk to people like that. I don't really socialize with people like that. You know what Jesus said before he ascended? You know what Jesus told the disciples in Acts 1, 8, before he ascended to heaven? You know what he told them? He says, hold on right there. I'm going to send my power so that you can be witnesses to all of the nations. Jesus says, I'm not looking for you to do it in your own strength, in your own power. I'm actually going to equip you to do the work that I called you to. I'll give you all of the power and the boldness that you need to declare my message. Stop talking about you an introvert. Stop talking about you got a stuttering problem. Stop, talk, stop talking about you don't know enough. You haven't been saved that long. God says, I don't need you to do none of that. I just need you to do what I told you to do, and I'm giving you the power to do it. Moses. Fearful Moses. If we look back early in Exodus and we see Moses called Moses fearful. God calls Moses. Moses doesn't sign up. Moses doesn't volunteer. God just comes to Moses in a burning bush. Like, hey, I know you are a shepherd out here herding these sheep, but I need you to lead my people out. And Moses like, mm, got the wrong guy. And God's like, so you telling me you know more than I do? He didn't care that Moses is bashful. He doesn't care that Moses actually has a speech problem. Moses actually has a stuttering problem. So much so if you read the story of the Exodus, he actually gives Moses an interpreter by the name of Aaron. He has a real, a real physical limitation. He actually can't talk that well. But God says, do it anyway. Do it anyway, bashful Moses. If God used Moses 
to glorify him and to evangelize him to an influential unbeliever, a person who had, had a speech impediment, a person who was inarticulate. Surely God can use you. God can use you too. I need you to hear that today. You don't need to meet all the qualifications. If you're a believer, you're already qualified. The qualification is not based on you. It's based on God's power. The, better you, the more limitations you have, the better it is, because that, that means the more glory God would get out of your life. So what we see today is the story of the conversion of a non-believer through the sharing of what the Lord had done to Israel. We get to see an actual conversion happen in the Bible. And I know some of us have shared our faith with people before, and one of the worst things about sharing your faith is when people don't want to hear what you got to say. We, we used to, back in the day, we was really on fire for Jesus. We used to go and knock on doors. We used to roll up in a neighborhood, go knock on doors, and share the good news with people. We didn't care if people had a gun, people had dogs or cats or whatever. And, and we went anyway. And, and it was always hard when people would say no or they didn't want to hear it or, or they were hostile to it. But, man, if you got one person who was willing to listen, that made all the other pain worth it. Because you know that then God used you. You didn't do it, but God used you to change the life of somebody else. That there's no paycheck that beats that. There's no job promotion that's better than that. You get to know that God was actually using you in a moment to take somebody from death to life. And this is what we get to see here. If God can use inarticulate Moses, he can use you with your degreed up self. I know I'm preaching that. <laughs> the good news spread all over the place. In verse 1, it says, Moses' father-in-law, Jephro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything that God had done for Moses and for God's people Israel when, he brought, when the Lord brought them from Egypt brought them out of Egypt. He heard about it. He didn't see it on his Twitter feed. Nobody posted about it, although they would have posted about it back then. But you know how he heard about it? Somebody had to tell him. Some shy person had to open up their mouth and tell them what the Lord had done. And so we get in this story, Exodus chapter 2, we actually introduced to Jethro early on. He's by a different name. His name is Ruel in the story, and a bit of irony, his name, his name Ruel actually means friend of God. The irony in this, before he saved, his name means friend of God. His name is Ruel, and Moses is married his daughter. His daughter is Zipporah. Moses married his daughter, and so the father-in-law gives the son-in-law a job. And Moses is in Midian living with his father-in-law, working for his father-in-law, he has two kids there. And so there, there's obviously a decent, at least a decent relationship we can surmise from the story that Moses has with his in-laws. That ain't the true story for everybody. Y'all missed that. But, but, but he gets along with his in-laws. He, he gets along with them, right? And, and, and so Moses got the call. Here's how I know they got along. Moses got the call. God talked to him in burning bush and said, I've commissioned you to lead my people out of Egypt, right? He says, I, I, I called you. And Moses has a job. Moses has a job. It's amazing how when God, God always calls people who got something to do already. Y'all ever notice God always called busy people? God never calls the lazy dude. God always calls the fisher who's fishing, the tax collector who's tax collecting, the shepherd who's already shepherding. God always calls people who got stuff going on. That's a side note for free. He has to go to his father-in-law and tell him what God told him. 
And here's what Jethro's response is. He says, I know I had a good relationship. He said, go in peace. He didn't say, give me a two-week notice. He didn't say, you got to finish your work. He says, just go in peace. It's weird, dude. You said God spoke to you in a burning bush. I think it's weird, but go ahead and do what you got to do. And so he allows him to go back to lead his people. So, so there's a, a decent relationship. But I want you to know this about Jephro. Jephro is no ordinary person. It says he's a priest of Midian. He's an influential, an influential spiritual leader in his own community. Jephro is an unbelieving person. He does not follow Yahweh. He does not follow the God of Israel. He's a priest of Midian. He's a priest of a pagan God, but he's a leader of other people. He is a spiritual leader. And so somehow he's told about this news about what God had done for Israel while they were in Egypt he heard about the Red Sea and this ain't no ordinary news because he would have known the reputation of the Egyptians the reputation of the Egyptians was that they were a killer army army they were a world power nobody could defeat them but all of a sudden suddenly they've disappeared they've drowned in the Red Sea and these puny little Israelites who can't beat nobody couldn't get it right if they wanted to have walked away through the sea on dry ground This wasn't no ordinary news because whenever God does save somebody, it ain't ordinary. God never does nothing ordinary. When God does something, when God saves, it's extravagant. When God changes you, he changes you for real. Sometimes we undermine the power and the nature of the gospel because God don't do little small behavior modifications. God don't do little small attitude adjustments. When God changes somebody, he makes you brand new. When God changes you somebody, he takes you from death to life. There ain't no ordinary salvation, so that means that there ain't no ordinary good news. God doesn't do anything regular. So the good news spread. This ain't no ordinary news. This would have been everywhere. And so what happens? He hears about this. And he's like, oh, so I guess what Moses said was true. And they're all right. And now they're in the wilderness. I'm tired of these grandkids of mine. They're cool for like a couple weeks. But at this point, you got to come get, you got to get your kids back. My daughter's back living at home. I don't really want to heal with me. I'm tired of her. I remember how she was as a teen. Now she's still acting like that as an adult. I got to take her back to her husband. Moses has got to get his family back. So they journey back to the wilderness. Uh, the priest of Midian, Jethro, takes Moses' family back to the wilderness where Moses is to reunite with his family, and it feels so good. Here's what it says. Verses 2 through 6. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken in Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, along with her two sons, one of whom was named Gershom, the other Eleazar. And Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, along with Moses' wife and sons, came to him in the wilderness where he camped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your two sons. And I think they're with Jethro for safety reasons. Moses knows he has a hard task to lead Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness and it won't be easy so we can just kind of assume that he sends his family away to be with their father-in-law until he finishes the work that God calls him to do but it might have been always their plan for them to reunite in the wilderness and so we have this family reunion right here in the text and many of us in a couple of weeks are going to be reunited with some people that we love we're going to reunite over some turkey and some honey baked ham and some fried chicken. If you can't cook Publix fried chicken, we're going to reunite over some macaroni and cheese and some dressing and some cornbread. Y'all feeling me? Green bean casserole if you're into that kind of thing. Potato souffle if you're into that kind of thing. We're going to reunite over, over some ribs and some, some, 
some food. I know all you vegan people are dying right now, but it's okay. It's all right. We're going to reunite over, over a big spread, and we're going to meet some people. We're going to reunite with some family members, and we're going to love on some people. And we're going to catch up on some people. And we're going to kiss and hug on some people that we hadn't seen in a while, and we're going to reminisce on the past with some of our family members, and we're going to just sit with them for a couple of days and, and enjoy them. We're going to leave Pastor hanging on the Sunday after Thanksgiving, and we're going to be with our families. I'm sorry. Um, and we, we're going to just be with them and, and, and enjoy our time with them. And some of us have saved family members, and we're going to talk about all that God has done in our lives, and we're going to talk about the goodness and the grace of God, and we're going to be telling testimonies and what's happening in church, and we're going to be talking about all that kind of good godly stuff. But, 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 but truth be told, most of us, also got some unsaved family members. You're going you're to meet your crazy cousin who's crazy as all get out, but you love him to death. You, you're going to meet with some family members, your unsaved auntie, your unsaved uncle, or your unsaved brother, sister, maybe unsaved parents. You, you're going to get to them. You, you're going to love on them too because you love them all the same. You love them all the same. We're going to reunite with those people, and we're going to love on those people because we all know some people in our family who are good, decent people, but they just don't have a relationship with the Lord. We know people like that. They, they, they don't have a relationship with the Lord, but they, 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 are, they are good people. You can trust them. They, they are upstanding citizens. They, they, they pay their bills. They, have a, they make a decent living. They take care of their family. They're an asset to the community, but they just don't walk with God. But maybe, just maybe, this is the year that God gives you an opportunity to not just love on them with your actions, but to love them with your words. Maybe this is the time that God not only allows you to catch up, allows you to share the good news that can change their lives. Just maybe God has given you the opportunity to love them enough to tell them the greatest news that they'll ever hear. But you know sometimes we, we, we're, 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 we're too afraid. We don't want to stir up the hornet's nest with our family members because it'll cause so much confusion and drama. But, but Moses was not like we are at times when we're more concerned and comfortable saving the world, but look past the souls of the people we say we love the most in our own families. That we know we need, that, that, that we know they need salvation. And we as believers have an inherent responsibility to share our faith, not just with the world, but also with our family. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not just about the person across the street. Sometimes your neighbor is a person in the same roof as you. And this is what he's called us to, that we should love people enough to tell them the good news that it's life changing. Now, I've said this, I've used this quote before, but late preacher Charles Spurgeon, who I think is the greatest preacher of all time, had this to say about evangelism. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. We have a responsibility to share. And so this is not just the conversion story of an unbeliever. This is the conversion story of a relative, of a family member. This is what we see here. And so if you're afraid and you're shy you're bashful and you're an introvert and all of those things and shout out to the introverts because I understand people can suck all your energy away I get it but God has called you to and you should do as Paul did when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus Paul says pray for me that I would declare the mystery of the gospel with boldness God help me 
to take these opportunities to tell people the good news of salvation, what Jesus has done by dying the death in our place and being raised to life so that we can have eternal life and forgiveness in him. Let, let us share this message. God, give me the boldness to speak to the people that I'm afraid to speak to. Speak to. But here in the text, here's what I want to do. I want to give us four things that I think will help us, four things that I think will help us to be effective in our witness and evangelism. Four elements to effective witness and evangelism. I think you should take these notes if you care about sharing your faith with people. I want to give you four, four elements to effective witness and evangelism. Four. Here's the four. Number one, humility. Number two, honor. Number three, honesty. And number four, hope. Here, here are the four elements that you must have for effective witness and evangelism, number one, you, you got to be humble. You must have humility. Number two, honor. Number three, honesty. And number four, hope. Humility, honor, honesty, and hope. And the first thing that we see Moses exhibit in the text is humility. When we see him in verse 7 going out to meet his father-in-law, it says he bowed down and he kissed them. And they asked each other how, how they had been. And then they went into the tent. Now, what we don't see is Moses acting funny with Jephro because Moses is saved and Jephro isn't. We don't see him looking down at unbelieving, unsaved Jephro, but what we do see is him demonstrating in humility a love for an unbeliever, so much so that he bows down and he kisses him. He shows him hospitality, but that hospitality is rooted in his humility. He, he, he humbled himself, hear this, by going out to meet Jephro. He didn't wait for Jephro to come into him. He went to Jephro first. And if we know anything about the gospel, the gospel is not going to God, but Jesus coming down to us. And he's demonstrating this in the text. He shows humility by going out to meet him the same way Jesus came to meet us. He bowed down and kissed him. He showed him respect. But all of this is rooted in humility. And we say, well, they have to earn my respect. Let me put a fly in that ointment. If you are a believer, people don't have to earn your respect. They're giving dignity, value, and respect by their creator. God said all people, regardless of what they believe or whether you agree with them or not, are created in his image. They have inherent value and inherent dignity and inherent worth that's not predicated on how you feel about them. And so until we understand that all people are image bearers, we'll keep missing the boat and no one will want to hear what we have to say. I don't care what kind of news you got. Nobody wants to receive anything from an arrogant person. And some of us, our families can't receive from us because we act like we're better than them. So you the rich auntie, huh? You the sophisticated auntie, huh? You wear pearls on your neck, huh? You got the nice jewelry, auntie. You drive the, the nicer car, auntie, right? And so you kind of look down on your sister's kids who ain't as successful as your kids or your sister who doesn't have the degrees that you do, but you want her to get saved like you're saved. But God called us to be humble before people because no one wants to receive anything from an arrogant person. 
And we struggle with this more than we like to believe. But we have to understand that as believers, we have a worldview that says all people, regardless of what they believe or what their lifestyle is, they have inherent value and dignity and worth that is given to them by their creator. No matter how you feel about them. Because God took the time to make them. So we have to operate in humility. And what we see is Moses treating his father-in-law with care and concern. Humility is vital to our effective witness. But he witnesses to him by, by, by demonstrating his love for him. Let me, let me explain the difference to you real quick between witness and evangelism. Witness is any acts that we do for other people that are rooted in God's love for us. So if we do a kind act to our neighbor, that's witnessing. If we do something nice for an old lady, that's witnessing. If we do something nice for the person that lives across the street, we're doing it to the glory of God. We are, we are witnessing to that person by our actions, but that ain't evangelism. Evangelism comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. And the only way a person can receive good news is if somebody verbally tells them. So witness is actions, evangelism is talking. And so oftentimes we're okay with witnessing, but we struggle with evangelizing. And we see him doing both. Because no one is actually converted by your kindness. People are converted about a message about faith in Jesus and repentance. And so we see this in the text, and it says, he recounted to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done. Recounted, recounted, literally means he proclaimed to him, he told him, he preached to him, he told him what God had done for them. So you may say, well, I don't feel comfortable telling people. I'll just show them by my actions. I love what Kirk Cameron, if you don't know Kirk Cameron, Kirk Cameron was a superstar in the 19. 1980s in a star a show called Growing Pains he, he was a, he was a he was a rock star who at the height of his popularity of the show he converted from atheism to Christianity somebody shared their faith with Kirk Cameron Mike, Mike Seaver if you grew up in the 80s and 90s so, somebody converted Mike see see I got a couple Growing Pains people here you know his, you know his co-stars, a son who's on uh, the show with the, uh, with the people dressed up in costumes that sing. Um, what's the show called? The Mass Singer, uh, Robin Thicke. Robin Thicke's daddy, Alan Thicke, was on this show too, just to connect it for you. Whatever. Here's what he had to say. This is a person who was an atheist, but somebody had the audacity to share the good news with him. He says to Christians that are afraid to share with their words the good news, if you had the cure for cancer, wouldn't you share it? But you have the, you have the cure for death. Share it. That's what we have. We have something better than the cure for cancer. We have the cure for death. Why do we have the cure for death? Because we know somebody who defeated death and the grave. We know somebody who took on sin on the cross, was dead, and on the third day was raised to life, who defeated death, Satan and his minions. That those who trust in him will never die but only live again. We, we have this. And if we, if we would tell somebody the cure for cancer, diabetes, or heart disease, why wouldn't we tell them the cure for death? And this is what he's called us to, and this is how serious it is. He doesn't just approach him with humility, but in his testimony, you know what there is? It's also honor. 
He honors God in his testimony. Look at verse 8. He recounted to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake. He, he told them all the Lord had done. Notice he doesn't put his testimony on himself. His testimony is rooted in what God had done. When he went in that tent, he told them all the crazy stuff from the plagues and the water turning, the blood turning to water and the manna and the water from a rock and the Red Sea. He told them all that stuff. And I'm sure, I'm sure Jethro was miles blown and he was like, oh my God, I can't believe all this stuff you've told me. But what he was highlighting in his testimony was God's ability to save but when you share your personal testimony about here's what happened with me, when I got saved, God gave me a job and God gave me a car and I was single and now I got a relationship. God is not a sugar daddy. God is not a genie. God is God. God was more concerned about saving you from your sins than it was about giving you a great life. And so he focuses his testimony on God. It was a God-centered testimony because if we tell people about ourselves, we set them up for failure. And that's part of the reason why many people are leaving the church because of Christians who've told them that God is going to give you a perfect and easy life that is sin-free, that is sickness-free, that is disease-free, that is divorce-free, that is hardship-free, that is disappointment-free, and that couldn't be further from the truth. All those things will happen to you, but the promise is that God will be with you. So we have to be God-honoring in our testimony. It should center around what God did for us who were helpless, who were like the Israelites, could not do anything for ourselves. My story is not about how I found my way to God, but how God drew me to himself. Romans 5 Six through eight, here's what it says. For while we were still helpless, while we were helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You couldn't do anything to save yourself. So how can your testimony be about you? For rarely will someone die for a person is a just person, though for, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You can tell people, brother, sister, you don't have to get yourself together to come to Jesus because you can't get yourself together. He draws you to himself. He does the work of salvation, not you. A testimony must be God-honoring. And thirdly, it must be honest. Look at verse 8. It must be honest. It must be humble. It must be honoring. And it must be honest. I love what this points out. Look at verse 8. Moses recounted to his father all the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake. Here's what he told him. All the hardships that confronted them on the way and how the Lord rescued them. He didn't give a testimony minus telling them what all he had been through. He didn't give him a Great, wonderful, best life testimony. Moses was not just for coming about the deliverance. Moses was honest about the wilderness. Moses was like, yo, this Christian journey, I love it. It's, it's, it's great. I get to work for God and God is glorified through my actions and God is working on me and changing me and saving me. But it's not easy. 
Our testimony should be honest. We should be honest with people that we do face hardships. When they were saved from Pharaoh and through the Red Sea, they came into a place of wilderness. And guess what was there? Lack. No water. No food. They struggled. They had things happen to them that they did not see coming. They didn't anticipate that they wouldn't have water and food in the wilderness. But this is what happened. And he shared this with them. He was honest about his testimony. Yes, following Jesus is worth it. Yes, I wouldn't change it for the world. But it is hard at times. Because when we don't, we set people up for failure. And then they leave when they don't get what they thought God was going to give them. Acts 14 tells us that it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter into the kingdom of God. But we follow the same pattern. We tell the gospel. It's not just Jesus coming to save us and give us a happy life. But the nature of the gospel is that Jesus suffered, was crucified on the cross, suffered the wrath of God, died in our place, and was raised to life. We share the part about his suffering because his suffering is also our suffering. It's not easy, but God promises to be with us and never leave us. So our testimony should be, number one, humble. Number two, should be honoring. Number three, it should be honest. And number four, and this is important, it should be hopeful. It should be hopeful. If there's any group of people in the world that should have hope, it should be Christians. If this was just the end for us, yes, we should have no hope. But we know that this ain't the end of it. That we serve a God who's made a promise to return, to come back and get us and right every injustice that's ever been done. He's, come back to, he's coming back to heal and cure every disease that anybody has ever had. He's coming back to right every wrong. He's going to heal everything, not just physically, but emotionally, mentally. If you've gone through the ringer, if you've experienced it, Jesus is going to come back and heal it. So we have this hope. We have this hope. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. It says this, instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed, this is what I'm talking about, when he comes back, if you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of, the glory, of glory and of God rests on you. You may have issues, circumstances, sufferings, injustices, things that have happened to you that were not right. I'm not telling you you don't have a justifiable gripe with life. Some things happen to you that should not have happened to you. Some things happen to you because other people dropped the ball. Some things happen to you that were out of anybody's control. But if you will follow Jesus, he promises to be with you. That your suffering is worth it. That your pain is not purposeless pain that your tears are not wasted but your tears are sown and one day you will reap glory that's our hope this life is not all that there is and this is what the Christian worldview offers how do you know that I know that and I can believe that because of what has already happened when Jesus got up out of that grave it changed everything it changed everything so if that happened, I have no problem believing the resurrected guy when he says he's coming back. 
And this is where our hope lies. It doesn't rest in eternal things, but it rests squarely on the promises of God. You can be hopeful. When you meet with people in a couple weeks of Thanksgiving and you have family members and you guys get to talking about all the viruses and the variants and all this other kind of stuff, because you will, mask, no mask, all this other stuff. At the end of the conversation, you don't have to be in despair like everybody else. You still can have hope because your hope does not rest in a disease or virus, but your hope lies in Jesus. So after Moses shares his testimony, verses 9 through 11 tells us what happens. Here's the conversion. Jethro rejoiced over all the good things the Lord had done for Israel when he rescued them from the power of the Egyptians. And here's what he said. Here's what this unbeliever said. Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord who rescued you from the power of Egypt and from the power of Pharaoh. He has rescued the people from under the power of Egypt. Now I know that the Lord, that Yahweh, that the God of Israel is greater than all the other gods because of what he did when the Egyptians acted arrogantly against Israel. Jethro has a positive response to the message. We call that faith. He responds in faith. And what we see is an unbeliever from a different nation, from a different tribe, coming into the family of God. He's not an Israelite. He's not a part of their, their crew. He's not the same ethnicity as them. He's a Midianite. But here he is into the family of faith. And he has joy. He rejoiced over what he had heard. And he says, now I know. Now I know. Now I know. He may have been curious before. But now he has an intimate knowledge of who God is. His life changes right before our very eyes. He knows because he has heard the testimony from somebody that he's close to. What convinced Jethro was not just God's salvation, was because somebody close to him experienced that salvation. This is what the gospel does. It grips the hearts of people. Love what happens in verse 12, and I'm done. Look at verse 12. This is amazing. Love verse 12. Here's a man who's saved, who comes to faith in Yahweh based off the testimony of his son-in-law. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the, all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in God's presence. And so he demonstrates his faith by worshiping God. He brings a burnt offering. That's important to know because to bring a burnt offering was an admission of guilt. To bring a burnt offering was to admit that I am a sinner and I'm guilty. And something has to pay for my sins. A burnt offering has to be brought forth to die in my place. So he gets an animal and brings it to stand in his place. And the priest would put his hands on the animal to transfer the sin of Jethro onto the animal and the animal would be burned to pay the penalty for the sins that Jethro committed. 
And because of that burnt offering, Jethro's sins have been forgiven and now he can be reconciled to God. That sounds crazy to you, but it's the same thing that has happened to us. And our burnt offering was the spotless, unblemished lamb by the name of Jesus. And he came down, stood in our place, took on our sins, transferred his righteousness to us, took on his sins, was crucified on the cross, took on our punishment, died in our place, shed his blood, but then he was raised to life for our forgiveness and for our eternal life. And by offering, bringing this burnt offering, Jethro is admitting that he's a sinner, but he receives the forgiveness of God. But he doesn't do it by himself. And this is why community is so important. We see Aaron and the elders of Israel, the leaders in the church, come and share a meal with their newfound brother. And they welcome this unbeliever into the family of God. This demonstrates to us right here the need and necessity for us to do Christianity in community. We see it right here in the Old Testament. Now, when Jethro gets saved, Jethro is not like, yeah, I'm going to just go out here and do my thing. It's going to be just me and my, my relationship with God. No. You see other believers coming and surrounding him, sharing a meal with him, bringing him into the family of God. We call that the church. We don't see him, Jethro, going on about his business by himself. No, he comes right there in the tent with the Israelites because he's now their brother. Because of his faith in the one living true God. And this is a picture of us. And this speaks also to the need and necessity of the church. I like to imagine after their celebration and their family reunion and their barbecuing and they're having a good time and you can smell all the lamb on the grill or whatever. Some kosher barbecue sauces all on the lamb and stuff. I like to imagine after he got finished with that meal and he went back home to Midian that he had a different story to tell about a different God, about a true and living God. And that beside him there is no other. A man who once believed in many gods was now a follower of the one living true God. Because that's what happens to us. We come into community, but then we go back out into the world to witness and work in the wilderness. That's not just their story. That's your story. Let us pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you.